Hello, this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a programme about globalisation and the effects that it has had on Ireland and other countries around the world over the last 50 years or so. In each programme, we interview a person from another country or with strong connections to another country to get their unique perspective on globalisation as it has affected them and where they live and the relationship to the wider world. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both for me and for my interviewees from around the world. In recent programmes we've travelled back and forth across the Atlantic from Spain, Croatia and Germany on this side to the US and Mexico on the other side. Today we're coming home to Ireland to talk to Michael Kelly, a man with many years of experience doing business overseas. We've spoken before about the process of economic globalisation that has changed Ireland radically over the last 40 or 50 years and particularly since about 1990. As Ireland became an exporting powerhouse through the 90s and 2000s, it also opened up to inbound trade as Irish businesses and consumers could afford and demand access to materials and products produced overseas. In those years, Michael ran a specialised import and distribution business in the water and fire protection markets. During that time, he built a strong business relationship with suppliers of pipes, valves and fittings in Europe as well as in China and South Korea. I'm delighted to have Michael here today in the studio to talk to us about his experiences and reflections on doing business overseas, as well as touching on some of his more social and altruistic activities. Welcome, Michael, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thanks, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Michael, to kick off, could you tell us a little bit about how you got a start in in life, in your work life, and how you came to be a businessman in the course of that work life and career? Yeah, I started in the work life very, very young. Uh, I was having a brother, God rest him. Uh, started delivering milk before we went to school after uh, the local milkman. And I have a picture of when I... The day I made my confirmation, or the day, days after I made my confirmation, I went into school. This was, uh, it was here in Dublin, was it? This in Dublin, yeah. So the old glass bottles with the foil top, was it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I could carry about ten of them when I was <laughs> in my arm. It's a, it's a, it's an art, I can assure you. Yeah, we had a four-wheel trolley or you know a pram or something that you know we put the crates of milk on and uh, delivered them before we went to school. And that's that time, uh, you delivered milk every day, including Christmas Day. You know, there was no, there was no differential. Every day, people hadn't got, were only getting fridges, and uh, so I expected to have milk every day of the week. And and uh, yeah, we did that before school. I have pictures. They made my confirmation a couple of days later. Went into school, get a photograph taken, and I was ten. I can remember that day doing my milk run and going home and changing my clothes and putting on my school blazer and short trousers and uh, going into school to get my get my photograph taken. So, yeah, that was my first about about ten. Yeah, yeah, I did that for a few years, and over time, then you'd you'd collect the money then at the weekend. You call on a Friday evening, and over time, the milkman would trust you, and you get your own leather satchel and knock on the door, milkman, and me at the door, and you'd collect a few quid. Interesting, interesting. Uh, and then when you left yeah. school, your first kind of real job if you want to call it that no I left school uh, well I when I was 13 I went knocking on doors in Henry Street looking for summer work as a lot of us did at that age yeah. and I got a job as a runner for Fitzpatrick Shoes running around town for them on their George Street branch uh, and I did that 
uh, till I was about till after I left school. I did that till I was eighteen every Saturday and every holiday. And uh, again, that was a that was another experience. It was around the time I was working in Tal around the time the Talbot Street and the Monaghan bombings, but the Talbot Street bombings in in that yeah, Saturday early seventies was it? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, yeah I was seventy four. I think that was. Yeah, I was in Dublin uh, that day. Actually, I was working around the city city as a runner that day. You know, so interesting. You know, and then. At what point did you actually go into business for yourself, and how did that happen? Oh, look, and simply I left school, uh, couldn't get a job, stayed in the shoe shoe business for a while, got a job working for Gilby's of Ireland, where they were just starting to make Baileys. Left there four years later, and went into the pipes, valves, and fittings business to be trained, and spent ten years being trained in various roles. I worked in. Credit it's kind control. of a big jump, isn't it? Your shoes, drinks. Pipes, files, and fittings. How does that happen? <laughs> well, I always wanted to work in an office. So that's why I left the shoe shoe job. Uh, I wanted to work in an office, and at the time, uh, you, you qualified as being a shoe salesman, and there was a apprenticeship to be done. And I did, even though I was only eighteen, I had three or four, I was on third year money or fourth year money. But I always wanted to work in an office. But I had no idea what people did in offices. So, what was the attraction of an office? I don't know. I just wanted to work in an office, and I got a job in uh, Gilby's and the Nice Rose now, Hino Harris, and I was earning twenty-two pounds a week in the shoes, and I took a job at sixteen pounds a week just to get into an office. <laughs> and I think the fact, I think the fact that I was prepared to take a twenty-five percent pay cut to take the job might have helped me, might have helped me get the job and and show uh, how t- enthusiastic I was. So that was an interesting experience. Uh, and then uh, I left there after four years. Wouldn't say it's the best decision I ever made. And I went to work for a company selling, a company called Easter Chew, just up behind the Red Cow Hotel in Dublin. And I spent ten years there in various roles. From I started out in credit management, and then a bit of making international payments, and then I was sales and marketing, and learned my trade really. Uh, it was a tough place to work. Uh, it was a question of throw you into the deep end and you swam where you left. You okay. know, but so a great a great training school. So after your 10 years there, what were you in your 30s then? Yeah, that? I was about 33 or 4, yeah. And is that when you went into business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That company was bought out by Walker Steel of the UK. Uh, it was an Irish company. It was bought by Walker Steel, Jack, Jack and Fred Walker, who owned Blackburn Rovers. And they bought the business in 1988, I think. And I just didn't see their policies working in Ireland. I just it, the company was very profitable at the time. The list of choose business I was working in, but UK policies in Ireland, uh, in my view, don't work. And that was my view at the time. But I had three kids and I had to feed them. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was took the bold decision of remortgaging my house, do eighty percent of its value, put it into a business. And then you have no choice. If you have three kids, you have no choice but to work hard, you know, yeah, work so, hard. So we're talking now in 1980s? 1990. 1990. Yeah, 1990, May, okay. May 1990, gave up the company car and salary. And so that was, that was before the Celtic Tiger, wasn't it? Ireland yeah, was yeah, just, was yeah. in, not in a great place at that time, was it? Ireland in no, it wasn't. economically. It, it wasn't. It wasn't economically in a very good place. But the 80s have been really tough. Yeah. Uh, and look, we... we Started small. We got the I got the idea that we would that I would leave the business I was in. I didn't see a future in the business. Didn't see a future for the business. And I got an, an idea to leave. Mm. Uh, there was only one small problem. We had no money to set up a <laughs> set up a business, uh, and the banks weren't in that risk business. Even though we tried them, uh, so eventually we we started very very small. Two of us, second hand desks, couple of 
chairs that were being thrown out of an office and uh, bought a fax, would you believe, at the time for about £1,100. Second-hand fax, £1,100. just shows you. I mean, the, 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 what was the business international from the beginning? Were there international suppliers there from the outside? Yeah, where we'd been trained. The company I'd worked for had, had bought internationally and, and we had contacts primarily, uh, the contacts we had in the business that we were intending to sell into was in the UK, but very quickly we, we developed into buying in Israel and buying in America and buying in Spain and buying in French francs and in France and French francs and, you know, buying in Italy and the lira and the peseta and the French franc and sterling and US dollars and the management of that became a big part of the business. But quickly I realised that the further away you went from the nearest island, which was the UK, uh, the better business you did and the more profitable business you did and and the more appreciated the business was. The easy thing was to go across the UK, but to make make proper margin, uh, we, we moved further afield, further afield. Mm. Uh, so, so when you were doing that, buying overseas, what kind of practical challenges did you face you know in terms of the logistics and the finance the people because as you said you started out very small when you're buying from overseas you probably need to uh, give the supplier a letter of credit yet you're not going to get paid by the person you're selling to in Ireland for 60 days 90 days whatever it is so you've got a huge kind of financing conundrum there how did you how did you work your way around that with difficulty, <laughs> with difficulty. Uh, look, it wasn't. It, we got open account in in Europe. In many cases, we got open account. When you went to, uh, you get thirty days credit. You know, not the sort of credit people would expect here. Uh, if you went as far as America, uh, we would got to a situation where we gave a letter of credit initially but then it was uh, then we got a standby letter of credit you know and worked our way into a situation where if you paid people on time and which a lot of people in Ireland didn't at the time if you paid people on time build a credit reputation and have a bit of honour about you and then when we went to China it was the same as it is uh, today it's 30% with order and it's 70% when you sight of uh, bill of lading so heavy going on the cash flow so there has to be margin in it to pay uh, the bank's the finance fee uh, but the margin was in it as, as we proved over a, over a period of time uh, if you can if what you know the bank gave us money at the time uh, Bank of Ireland Finance gave us money at the time it was expensive money uh, and the interest rates were high and the charges were high but without that money we couldn't make money we no money to make money, but even though it was expensive money, we found a way of making money on the back of, on the back of that. Yeah, and suppose you uh, developed a lot of expertise then in, in working with because there was no single market at that point, so mm. everything had you know customs regulations and yeah, declarations yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. So what a lot of companies, a lot of that knowledge, I guess, was was lost in the economy here with people working with European countries, and a lot of companies are going to have to learn that again now, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to open, open, open your mind and keep ahead of the posse and whatever the challenges are, and and control the controllables and those things that are outside your controls. You have to work. You have to work with them. Adapt just, to them. Yeah. Pardon. You have to. You have adapt to, to them. adapt to them. And and every market you go into to buy, you know, we were buying and selling. Uh, you have to adapt to what's happening in that particular that particular country and see if it fits 
with you uh, and whatever whatever way they do business, uh, they're not going to change radically for somebody in Ireland. And we were never going to be the biggest customer purely by the fact that we had the population we have here. But we always wanted to be a good customer. We wanted to be reliable. We wanted to give consistency of order. We wanted to be honourable. And uh, most importantly, we wanted to pay people on time. And that's that stood to us because we built a reputation for doing good business. Doing mm. good business, we'd fight over the discount, we'd fight over the delivery, we'd fight over, you know, the quality of the literature, but we always paid on time, or before that date, and that that at the time was most unusual uh, most unusual for Ireland but it suited my personality not the way I was trained, trained but it suited my personality to do that and it works, it, it works, it works So in terms of uh, you mentioned in those early days countries such as Israel, Spain some Asian countries what kind of cultural challenges did you meet in doing business with those countries at that time? Oh, look, the first time I went to Israel, sure, I didn't know where it was going. I went to Singapore, and I didn't really know what I was what I was doing or where it was going. And I went on a trip to China in 1997, and it's a, it's a journey into the unknown. And as I said earlier, it's it's uh, how would I put it? Everywhere is a challenge. Everywhere is the language. Language isn't really the problem. It's the culture. The language is okay because a lot of these places they speak English. I don't speak any foreign languages, so they speak English. And uh, but they're all different, you know, all all different. And travelling then isn't like it's travelling today, you know. The, any any the funny trips. anecdotes from those trips? Yeah, I didn't like Israel for no particular reason. I thought they were lovely people. They were great business people. They had great products, but there was too many guns under the people's arms. And you get on the bus and there's half a dozen people with submachine guns under their arm because they're all part in, in the army. That didn't... I didn't... I, I, I didn't like... Uh, I didn't like that. Going to China was challenged no matter where you went because uh, where the business people spoke English, other people didn't spoke, speak English. So to get from A to B... Uh, was it was a challenge? But one thing I did do, I went to China and, uh, three or four times after I was there. I was going to see a company, and the girl I was dealing with very good English, but she wasn't going to be there. So the the guys, business people over there, they the owners, they don't speak English, uh, and I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. So they hired an interpreter who was a young lady straight out of college, working as a teacher, but she was just doing a nixer, as we'd call it here in Dublin, doing a nixer. And uh, she was mad, mad keen just to, to use the English that she had learned, all the English that she had learned. So uh, she was working for them. They had employed her, but I slipped her the equivalent of twenty dollars, and she was on my side. So from the business <laughs> point of view, we were around the table. She could tell me what they were saying when we were having discussions about price and what was going on, and they thought she was in their pocket. But twenty euro will, or twenty dollars went <laughs> went went a long way. Uh, yeah, culturally they're they're not bad people, but at the time they they only wanted to sell a container if they got an order they weren't concerned with the quality was as long as they got their LC and got paid if you had trouble quality wise it, they weren't too concerned but that has changed they're now interested and have been for a long number of years doing long term business the same as we want to do long term business you know but it's cash 90, 30% with the order and 70% inside of 
site and that are credit and Ireland, if you get paid the 60 days or 90 days, you're, thank, you're thankful. So as your earlier comment was, to balance the books to get the cash flow uh, was was a challenge, an ongoing challenge as it is for, for most businesses. Yeah. But uh, said Israel didn't particularly take to it. Being there, you wouldn't get a whole lot into Israel without them knowing But the questions they ask you and coming back out and getting it. But they all have a challenge, as the Chinese is a challenge. But it's a lot easier now than it was now you have mobile phones now you have email emails now uh, you've got good planes to go on planes to go on time you know yeah I guess the, this this thing and particularly the China thing China opening up in the 80s and 90s where it started to today where they're kind of the the workshop of the world and they've got huge um, export going on but to such an extent that even President Trump is upset about the the imbalance and trade between the United States and China, and all of that is a is a manifestation of this phenomenon of globalization that we've seen over the last 30, 40 years. So uh, we're seeing a bit of kickback against that now with Donald Trump and the protectionism, with Brexit, with rising nationalism around Europe in particular. What's what's your own view on globalization? Is it a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? Where where do you see it going? Look, it's a, it's a positive thing in my view. Globalisation, we've all to learn from other people. Uh, we all have competitors. There's nobody in the world hasn't got a competitor. Uh, my personal view would be that uh, Mr Trump is going to have a difficult job because that boat has sailed. If the people in China can make a quality product as they can in my business with world approvals, whether it be Canadian, American... German or UK approvals, quality products, and they can make a valve for and sell it for 50 euro. And the Americans used to make them, haven't made them for a long time, and it's going to cost 150 euro in America. No matter what Mr. Trump does or what taxes he imposes, uh, he has an uphill he has an uphill struggle. Uh, I was with a company, but two years ago, a little bit over two years ago in China, and they apply 7,200 people, highly automated. Uh, cheap labour world approvals on our products they work six days a week and the average salary is $400 a month month. we can't compete with that people in America can't compete with that Uh, so if they have cheap labour one thing they have highly automated and good good systems good procedures looking after people and uh, all the world approvals on their products Uh, very hard to compete very hard to compete for us to compete or someone in America to compete with that and the Chinese uh, are renowned for copying products, but they're well past that. You know, very clever people over there. Well past when they need to be get a product in Europe, bring it out and make a clone of it. They're in all ends, well, no matter what it is. They they they're clever people. They have a strong work ethic. They they are available anytime you want them. They'll communicate with you by WhatsApp, or they'll communicate it with you by QQ, is their equivalent, by text message, by email. By, by Skype they'll do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, you know you send them an email today you'll get a reply tomorrow they'll answer every every question uh, they're highly trained uh, you know a number of years ago here there were 3 million university students were coming out of uh, Chinese universities uh, every year every year that was a number of years ago so they're hung- they're, and they're hungry mm-hmm. they're hungry mm-hmm. uh, very hard to compete uh, very hard to compete with that but it's not only China you know there's other countries as well are on, on the horizon and uh, but we have to be aware of what's going on out, what's going out there and, uh, so this is a 
a threat in a way for Ireland. So here we benefited greatly from foreign direct investment, multinationals and so on. I think a lot, a lot of uh, your customers uh, in your pipes, valves and fittings business were multinationals that you supplied here for, with, yeah. the, with the equipment that they needed. And that all went on through the 90s and the 2000s and, and we, we, we did very well. So where do you see Ireland's future success lying in the face of this kind of competition from abroad, from places like, like China? What does our go- government need to do and what should Irish business owners be thinking about doing? Look, I think the government are doing a lot of things right. I think they have, the IDA have done an excellent job over the last 30 or 40 years getting American corporations coming into Ireland, whether it be the Googles or the Intels or the Hewlett Packards or the pharmaceutical companies. They've done a tremendous job. Uh, in the particular, and I hope they continue to do that, and the signs are they have Facebook spending massive money on data centres, and there's more on the horizon. I was reading over the weekend, uh, there's more data centres on the horizon. Uh, yeah, but in China, in my particular business, it's a lot of it is foundry work. It's cast iron, as you would understand. It's actually ductile iron valves, and it's it's dirty. It's dirty business, and it's not environmentally very good. So from a European point of view, we didn't want that in Europe. We brought in legislation from an environmental point of view. You can't do it in Ireland. So we brought sent that to China. And now the Chinese are, and I'm sure the legislation is the same in America, the Chinese are now making it. But even in China now, they're pushing that three miles from the major cities three sorry three hours drive from the major cities because it's high in pollution and, mm-hmm. uh, but now the Irish government has done a tremendous job look at the American investments look at our exports uh, because of that look at the money that's been spent look at what's on the horizon with Intel uh, going into next year something like 7 billion on the horizon for Intel Intel next year lots of jobs in that data centres three or four or five hundred people employed when they're being built but not big employers of people you know a big data centre might employ 90 or 100 people uh, so you know once it's up, in, up and running but the idea of done tremendous work look at all the pharmaceutical companies we have in this country very very strong selling them over originally a lot of them started in Cork down in Little Island and uh, they're around the country as well and we have lots and lots of them and I hope that I hope that continues big big employers look at Intel 5,000 5, people mm-hmm. uh, but as I said to you about the company I was with in China they have 7,200 people so and the cities in China that we uh, we've never heard of and they have 10 or 15 Million people or twenty million people. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So we're not we're not yeah. in in scale of things. We're we're small, you know. Yeah. One of the things that I've been hearing uh, through the media and the news and so on is is a risk that uh, if Britain uh, crashes out of the EU, there's a hard Brexit. Uh, a lot of the, particularly the food products that we import, will be subject to tariffs coming from the United Kingdom, uh, which will drive inflation and so on. Um, and it seemed to me that that was almost like a kind of a passive response, doing nothing and just swallowing that. But your, the story you've told us here today is from the very beginning of having gone far and wide in search of um, suppliers. What should Irish importers today who have always only imported from the United Kingdom, what should they be doing instead of just swallowing the tariff and the inflation that will come from it? 
Well, I think the question really should be what should Irish exporters be doing? Small companies who are exporting. And if the big percentage of our business, as in many cases, is in the UK, it's long, long past the time when they should be going further afield. Good point. And, and, yep. and that's really where, you know, if we're exporting and you're exporting into the UK and there's 60 million over there, there's a world out there. Imagine if you could get a product into China where there's 1.2 or 1.3 billion people. You know, you only need a very, very, very small fraction of 1% to generate that. So if you're looking just to the UK, it's easy, it's short, short gallop across. But, you know, you can bring in a container, a product from China at the minute for 20-foot container for less than €1,800. You know, how much does it cost to go from the UK in here? It's a big, expensive stretch expensive stretch of water. So, well, we're importing is one situation, but the exports, I think, concern for the food industry. And I think some of the bigger food companies, Carry Foods, etc., are, are wise enough. They've been selling it, uh, selling worldwide for a long time. Uh, and Irish businesses need to do that. Uh, you shouldn't have any more than market really 10 or 15% of your business going into any country and anyone that's selling 60 or 70% or 80% of their business into the UK it's long past yeah, the time just not diversified uh, enough right? Not diversified enough and Irish people are well able to travel so we, we should be sourcing uh, other markets and I'm sure some of the government bodies would help people do that uh, but it's long past the time because we can't be dependent on the UK market because we don't know where it is and the uncertainty surrounding it at the minute is, is uh, shocking yeah. I guess where importers and exporters find each other, so when you were looking for foreign suppliers, where did you go? You went, I guess you went to trade shows around yeah, the world. Is that, is that a good place to... Pardon? Is that a good place to start for people? Yeah, trade shows are a great place to start because you find out what's going on in other markets and you learn and they learn from you. It's a great place and we used to go to trade shows and some were good and some were bad and you'd find something but it was a question of walking the halls and walking the halls and walking walking the halls like obviously the internet's a great a great friend but it's also your worst enemy and let me explain that you can anyone can do a web page a very very good web page that doesn't mean the substance behind that sure so when I go to China uh, I only do business in China when I've seen the factory and I've had some disastrous visits where they say they're making product and when you go knocking on the door and go inside you realise having spent a day or two travelling that within five or ten minutes this is not what they wanted to be so the only way in my view to do business in China buying or selling particularly buying is to make sure they have a factory because they'll promise you the sun moons and the stars but then salesmen are like that all over the world you know but I think exporting I think imagine if something like Bailey's took off big time in China, you know, Spaleys are, you know, imagine what they could do, you know, what they could do out there, the pure volume of people, the poor volume of people, you just think it's, it's and until you go out there and see them, uh, you don't realise, you know, we talk about a billion or 1.2, 1.3 billion, now they're 1.2 billion or 1.3 billion, but now they have money, they've, a lot of people out there have money to spend, so anyone selling high-end products, in my view, is the place to be. I don't know about India, I understand India's India's good as well, but I don't. I haven't been there. Haven't mm-hmm. been there. Okay. So in the last few minutes, maybe we'll talk about a few things that are maybe outside the, the world of work. Yeah. I think you told me that one of the things you like to do is uh, mentoring young people. Um, I was interested to know how, how you do that and why, why it's important to you. It's important to me because I want to give back. Uh, it's important to me because I think we have a duty of care as we get older to help people. 
to help young people and to help them and guide them and direct them. It's important to me because it's a tough world out there for young people. They have everything and at the same time they have nothing, in my view. Uh, they haven't got something that I think everybody in the world really struggles with at this stage is peace of mind. They don't seem to be content. Uh, I enjoy doing it. Uh, I primarily do it with young people at this stage, with young people who are from overseas, not for any particular reason other than they've just fallen into that. I know quite a number of people from Romania and Poland, India, and uh, they're looking for career advice. They're well qualified. They're nice people. They have a strong work ethic. And I've kind of half fallen into being able to mentor a number of them and get them jobs, uh, get them jobs in the area in which they're qualified. That's, you know, they have a lot of qualifications. They come to Ireland, they don't have the English at a level that they can go into their profession. Sometimes the qualification they have doesn't transfer when they come to Ireland and they need a little bit of guidance on how to how to manage that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's something I do. Uh, I don't plan to do it every day, but I probably do it most days. And it's immensely rewarding. Mm-hmm. It's immensely rewarding. I get far more out of uh, giving than I than I do in the people who I'm giving to. You know, it's immensely rewarding. And I was always taught when I was growing up, give 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 back. You know, give back, give to people. It'll come back to you. And uh, my mother always said that. So I think somewhere along the way I picked up that give back, give back. You can't take it with you. You know, you yeah, can't yeah. you can't take it with you. So uh, and I think we have a duty as we get older to to. Uh, Take care of to take care of those young people is in a difficult world for them, in my view. In my so great to have you here, Michael. It's been a pleasure, as always, to uh, talk to you about the long career that you've had, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for being here today. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thanks, Patrick. All the best. Bye bye.